dynamic promise, isn't it? That's good stuff. Somebody said that's good stuff. It's good stuff. This verse, notice on your study guide, is a dynamic promise of spiritual security in a topsy-turvy, dangerous, uncertain, and how many knows even sometimes hostile world. Truth is, nothing we can do can change the character of this world because it is what it is. It will always be fleshly. Right? It will always be carnal. It will always be worldly. All right? But there is something we can do to keep that fleshly, carnal world from permanently changing us as believers. There is a source of security the psalmist tells us about. It comes from God's word, God's law that gives us Great peace keeps us right side up when everything else is turned upside down. Hello. And uh, I, I was thinking how Psalm 119, 165 contains three things, a promise, a condition, and a result. That's what we're going to look at. Notice on your, on, on your, not on your bulletin, on your study guide, a promise, a condition, and a result. All right, let's briefly look at each part. First of all, Roman numeral one, the promise. Everybody say the promise. Okay, the promise is great peace. Praise God. Now, how many can say peace is an amazing concept, but great peace is even better? Right? Because peace is man's highest hope. His fondest dream, and most days, though, seems hard to achieve. Why? Because how many know we live in a world of war? Yeah. Notice on your study guide in the last 3,500 years of recorded history, there have been approximately 8,000 peace treaties, 14,000 wars, over a billion casualties. In a world at war, the devil promises peace, but how many know he can't deliver it? I think it's Jeremiah, the prophet, in like 8.11, says that false prophets cry peace, peace, when there is no peace. Daniel 8 and 5 says that the Antichrist, by peace, shall destroy many. Worse yet, in a world of war, unregenerate man cannot find peace for his own soul. Isaiah, for example, 48.22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. I think it was author Lloyd uh, Corey. He said, and I quote, Peace is the glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. That's one way to put it. However, the psalmist announces great peace has been available to man. Now, let's, let's put a finer point on this. 
Notice on your study guide, biblical peace is not the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of Christ. Oh, hallelujah. J. Oswald Sanders said, peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God. How many know you can be at peace in the midst of your trouble if you have the presence of Christ with you? There will never be a time in this present fallen world when everything externally is 100% okay. This isn't going to happen. Life never lacks for some kind of conflict. Have you found that out? Always conflict somewhere. While we may never experience physical peace around us, we can, though, according to Scripture, have a supernatural spiritual peace of God, which the Bible says is a peace that surpasses understanding. It surpasses understanding. Why? Because it can exist in the middle of trouble. Hmm? For example, it was this great peace that gave Paul and Silas the ability to sing in prison after they had been beaten. It was this great peace that gave the New Testament deacon by the name of Stephen the vision of Christ at the right hand of the Father while he himself was being stoned to death. Some might say great peace. It was great peace that enabled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to enjoy fellowship with Christ, even in the midst of a fiery furnace. Huh? See, the great peace that God gives will overcome any conflict we might experience in this life. Now, the Hebrew word, though, for peace, anybody remember what it is? Shalom. Everybody say shalom. If you visit Israel today, people on the street will greet you. Shalom. Peace to you, my friend. It is a mistake to think of shalom as simply being the absence of conflict. Because it has a richer meaning than that. Because biblical shalom involves things like the ability to prosper, happiness, contentment, most of all the blessing and favor of God. So it is a very positive, very rich, very wholesome conflict uh, concept. Excuse me. And the Bible has a lot to say about peace. If you read passages like Isaiah twenty six three, John fourteen twenty seven, Romans five one, uh, Philippians four six and seven. Time prevents me from sharing all of those. So, but we read the peace that Christ has secured for us, and we ask, how can we know, notice on your study guide, if we have this great peace that this text is talking about? Well, I want to give you three marks to look for in your life. Number one, the first mark is a clear conscience. Boy, if you don't have a clear conscience, you need one. It's possible to have one. And I'm going to venture to say you can have one before you leave tonight. Hello. 
There will be no peace as long as we harbor known sin and wrongful attitudes. So we have to take care of those issues. That will bring a clear conscience. Okay, so these are the marks to look for. Number two, not only a clear conscience, but a contented heart. This means a heart that is at rest. In the middle of the hustle and bustle of life, your heart can be at rest. It is the opposite of a heart that is consumed with anxious care and the worries of the world. A contented heart is number two. Number three, a confidence in God. By this I mean a confidence that looks back to the past and sees the hand of God in all the varied and changing circumstances of your life. This is sort of confidence that sees God at work in the good times as well as the bad. Leading us through some very dark valleys, yes. It's this confidence that looks at the present and says, you know, I'm, I'm here by God's appointment, so it's good for me to be here even though I would prefer to be elsewhere. It looks to the future with anticipation, knowing that God will lead us step by step so that we end up exactly where He wants us to be. What a consoling promise this is. Great peace. Shalom. It's a promise that's within the reach of every child of God. Amen. All right, so. That's the promise. Where are we at? Roman numeral two. The condition. The condition. Notice what it is. Those who love thy law. This is a very precise condition, and it's attached to this promise of great peace. This great peace or shalom is only given to those who, according to the psalmist, love God's law. Right? Now, that may seem to be a difficult concept. I mean, how do you, how do you love a book of laws? <clears throat> I mean, that idea kind of seems nothing short of an oxymoron. Because those two words aren't used normally together, love and law. Right? For instance, suppose I go to... Uh, the local DMV, Department of Motor Vehicle, pick up the uh, manual, the Ohio Driver's Manual, a.k.a. Rules of the Road, right? It's basically a set of laws that govern how we should drive. So what if, as I read it, I begin to say to you, you know, I really like this book. I love the rules of no passing up a hill. Hmm? I love the law that covers uh, parallel parking. Oh, I really love the part about organ donor registry. Huh? 
Suppose I love the booklet so much that I take it with me everywhere I go. Uh, to s Listen, folks. Most people would think I was a little bit strange. Huh? And how many know they'd be right? Huh? Let's try illustration the other way. Let's suppose you buy a, a Betty Crocker cookbook. And when I ask you how you like it, you say, oh, man, I love this cookbook. It is absolutely my favorite. I love everything about it. I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels. I love the way the pages are so neat. I love the index in the back. But I really love that recipe for chicken parmesan. Yeah. Oh, I just love it. And I read it, Timmy, I read it six or seven times a day. And when I do, it's hard to keep from crying. <laughs> now, if you talked like that, I would probably conclude you have a serious need of some professional help. <laughs> hmm? Now let's make one adjustment to that illustration. Let's suppose that the recipe book is from your beloved grandmother. Each recipe was written in her own handwriting. Each page is worn and stained from the cooking that she did so many years ago. And as you turn each page and you read each recipe, you remember your grandmother and how much she meant to you. You love that recipe book because you love the person who wrote it, right? See, it's more than words on a piece of paper. It's a reminder of a family relationship, a symbol of love that spans the generations. See, folks, when I think of the Bible that way, the concept of loving God's law takes on a new meaning. We are not to love the Bible in the sense of loving the ink printed on the paper. It's not just the words we love or even the message contained in the words. We love this book because we love the one who wrote this book. Hmm? His words have meaning for us because we know him personally. Seen in this light, loving God's law means more than reading the Bible, means more than memorizing certain passages or meditating on your daily reading uh, program. It goes beyond mere approval or regard. It even goes beyond delighting in the Word. To love God's law means to embrace it wholeheartedly as the rule for our lives. And because we love God, we love His Word, and we make it the foundation of all that we say and do. Now, to be honest, loving God's Word doesn't come automatically just because we read the Bible every day. Hmm? After all, too many people, how many know too many people read the Bible mechanically and are never changed? They're never touched. They're never moved. They read the Word, but they do not love the Word. And the ability and the desire to love God's Word comes from none other than God Himself. Here then is the most practical application for all of us. Because notice on your study guide, as we think about this verse and contemplate what it promises and what it requires, we should ask God, give us a true 
and deep lasting love for his word. Hmm? Broadway, ask for it. Seek it. Tell the Lord that you want to be more than a reader of His Word. You want to be more than a student of His Word. Tell Him you want to love His Word. Huh? Ask Him for that love. Pray that it might be implanted in your heart. And if we ask in sincerity, I have a feeling that's a prayer God will be pleased to answer. Amen? Is this making sense? So when I truly love God's law, both in word and deed, this promise says, I will have peace in my heart. I'm not troubled by the conflicting philosophies of the world. I'm not drawn to its weak and beggarly elements. I live by a higher principle on a higher plane. Hello. I have great peace. It's a perfect peace, according to Isaiah 26.3. It's a peace that is not as this world giveth, like John 14.27 says. It's a peace which surpasses all understanding, as Philippians 4.7 says. And that is the peace that he's talking about. Amen. All right, where are we at? Number three? Okay. So we've went through the promise, the condition. Let's look at the result. The result is nothing, everybody say nothing, nothing shall offend them. The end of the verse tells us this wonderful result that comes from this great peace God gives to those who love his law. Nothing shall offend them. Now that in itself seems like a fantastic promise, an incredible result. You know... You ever heard something that's almost too good to be true? That's the way it sounds. <coughs> but you can check the world. Uh, <coughs> you can check the word "nothing" in the Hebrew, and you know what it means? Nothing. It means no offense taken. Now let me say a few things here about how loving God's Word helps us because it helps us navigate through times when our relationships even get strained. Hello? Because how many know the truth is Christians should be some of the hardest people to offend in the world. But too often, we are the most easily offended people in the world. Oh, amen, Pastor. But the psalmist implies that if we would purpose to live by God's words instead of others' words, we would proof ourselves against common offenses. Now, we all know that in uh, life, Christ said it. He said it's impossible not to encounter offenses. He told his disciples, for example, in Luke 17.1, Offenses will come. Didn't he? So if it is a given, then what do we do when we find ourselves encountering one of those offenses? Can we encounter an offense without being offended? Can we encounter hurt without being hurt? 
If people are going to offend us and then refuse to admit they've done so and refuse to change their actions and attitudes so that it won't happen again, how do we proceed? How do we navigate that? How do we keep our sanity, much less our salvation? Hello. How do we stay out of jail? Because I just feel like slapping them. Hello. That's the way some folks think in their sanctified attitude. Well, if you slap them, you're going to go to jail. I want to mention three things that we're going to need to do if we want to encounter offenses without being offended. All right? Because the good thing about all three of these points that I'm going to share with you is that we can do them ourselves. We don't have to have the other person's participation or their permission. These three steps will allow us to walk in freedom from offenses. Are you ready? The first step, notice on your worksheet, is be immersed in God's Word. That's what this psalmist is telling us. This is our best offense defense. Did you get that? God's Word is such a powerful tool in defending us against offense because the Word helps us know who we are and whose we are. God's Word produces peace in our hearts because it tells us what God thinks about us. And the truth is, you want to be sure God thinks about you more than what people think about you. Hello. So the Word of God becomes our defender, our shield, our refuge, our strong tower. So if we're rooted in the Word and all the truth that it gives us, we're not susceptible to lies, to exaggerations, to rumors, to offenses. If we love God's Word, then we won't be deceived by our enemy who would like to blow things out of proportion. Who will lie about motives. Who will lie about intentions. Who will make mountains out of... You've heard that phrase. Who will try to divide and conquer. So the logical conclusion is that since I personally know no one, including myself, who isn't susceptible to offense, then I must also conclude that everyone I know is vulnerable to offense if we don't love, 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 hello, interact, and have a knowledge of this book right here. Because if there is no word of God, then there is no peace of God when faced with an offense. The truth is most of us don't handle hurts very well. Hello. Because we love our rights more than we love what God writes. Oh, did you catch that? Huh? You know, that's, that's almost a tweet right there. 
If we want to handle offenses correctly, we must make a commitment commitment to love God's word, not, not lip service. Oh, I'm talking about a deep commitment proven by our devotion to it so that we know how to handle the word when the word handles us. Hmm? How many know we know how to re- we should know how to respond when convicted? Yeah. It's the word that helps us see others as God does. And it's the word that helps us rightly discern situations. So, so step one in handling hurts or offenses is to make sure we're immersed in the word of God. We can do this even if the person is, uh, uh, who offended us never apologizes, never acknowledges their error, never approaches us with an olive branch or a peace offering. Hello. We can allow the Word of God to be our defense. That's all you need. Okay, let's see. Second step to appropriately handling an offense or hurt is remember. Somebody say remember. Remember Remember the grace we have received. See, grace given should result in grace giving. The truth is that forgotten grace breeds unforgiving living. Some struggle at handling offenses simply because they have conveniently forgotten how much forgiveness has been given to them. And therefore, when we are wronged, we want revenge and justice and, 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 and there's no room in our hearts for mercy. And, and Paul instructed, I think it's the believers in Ephesians chapter 4, he's like, you got to get over your offenses and your issues quickly. Somebody say quickly. Don't you hold your grudge. You forgive as quickly and as thoroughly as you have been forgiven by God. Oh, hallelujah. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, Christ addresses this in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 30. And actually, verse uh, 37 through 38, verse 38 is familiar to us. Uh, It goes like this. Give and it shall be given unto you. Remember that? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give unto your bosom. Uh, for with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Okay? Now, this is the section we usually land on when we want to talk about financial sowing and reaping. Right? How many times have we heard that when we go, go to take an offering? But the truth is, sowing and reaping isn't just about money. The context, actually, of this passage is about relationship reconciliation. With that, with what measure we dispense grace and forgiveness out, then it's going to be measured to us likewise. If we dish out just a tablespoon of grace to someone that really needs a gallon of grace, hello, let's not anticipate them dishing us a gallon of grace when we need it. They're going to give us a teaspoon. Hello. 
Jack Hayford calls this the law of self-administrated return. Some of us are cutting ourselves off or limiting our life because we limit what we give when it comes to relationships. We are the ones who determine how much of God's abundance is going to flow toward us. That's what the text said. What is God's greatest gift to us? Well, we shouldn't have to think of that. It's forgiveness. Hello? Everybody say forgiveness. forgiveness. Anybody in here glad you're forgiven? Listen, we want to apply this law that I'm talking about here, given it shall be given unto you. We want to apply that to our money, but we want to ignore it when it comes to our marriage. We want it to work for our nickels, but not for our neighbors. We want it to work for economics, but no, we want to apply that to our enemies. See, we want to measure wrath and revenge and harsh words to them, but forget that if we measure them by that measure, then we can't expect to receive grace either. We determine how much grace we receive by how much we give. And if we're going to learn how to handle offenses and hurts, we must be willing to operate in the same amount of grace that we've been given by Christ. Oh, praise God, I'm glad I'm forgiven. I said, I'm glad I'm forgiven. And I need His grace every day. Praise God. Is this making sense? Any, any, any sense at all? Number three. Okay. Hmm. So we talked about being immersed in God's Word, remembering the grace we've received. And then number three, allow people to be people. Now, Paul understood that like, like it, uh, he understood it like there's going to be somebody somewhere that's going to come along and rub us the wrong way. Hmm? They're going to say something or they're going to do something that's stupid. <laughs> you know, he knew he's going to have a fair share of opportunities to be offended. He knew we would. So in response, he teaches us to approach every relationship with a willingness to make allowances. Did you get that? Become willing to make allowances. Well, give me scripture and verse. All right, I will. Colossians 3.13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Translated... Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive. Somebody say forgive. Forgive anyone who offends you. Think about that statement. Make an allowance for each other's faults. That means make room for mistakes. Some of us approach every relationship with so much demand, so much expectations, that we leave no room for someone to choose the wrong word, the wrong tone, or do the wrong thing, or give us the wrong look. Hmm? 
Paul would say, hey, you need to make allowance for that. C.S. Lewis, you, you got it on your paper there. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. But if we enter every exchange and every encounter willing to give someone room to make a mistake without it being fatal, then we're able to defend ourselves against offenses. You know, I've discovered that being upset and offended, it's just easier than being like Jesus. Hmm? It's just our natural default setting. Huh? So here is our defense against offense. Be immersed in the word. Give the measure of grace we've been given. Allow people to people hmm? truth is <laughs> some folks are selfish anybody ever met a selfish person some folks are selfish some folks I know you're not going to believe this but they're self-centered some folks are just plain old mean insensitive brash overbearing Obnoxious. Some folks are just rascals. <laughs> and therefore, they are likely to do something that could hurt our feelings. Except for the fact that we make an allowance for those type of actions and attitudes. So we can encounter offenses without being offended, even if the others won't participate. We can defend against debilitating offense, whether they acknowledge that they've hurt us or not. We can defend our hearts, even if they continue to do the senseless, crazy stuff. Why? Because we love God's words. And we love them more than we love man's words. Man. So I started this little part by saying, check the word nothing. In Hebrew, you'll discover it means nothing. It means no offense taken. So it means nothing is going to irritate us. Nothing's going to destroy our calm composure. Nothing's going to get under our skin. Huh? If it does, let's go back and say, okay, God, I need you to help me out here. I want to, I want to really... Kind of stir up my love for your word. Hmm? Oh, I'm just hot and bothered. Hmm? Been out of shape. On edge. Angry, frustrated. Whew. Nothing shall offend them. It's quite a promise. Hello? It's quite a promise. We read those words, we, we almost unconsciously want to downgrade them to read something like, not very many things will offend them. Hmm? Or 
most things won't bother them. But a few things will really tick them off. That, of course, <laughs> beloved, that's our flesh not wanting to take God's word at face value. And it reveals the tendency we all have to make excuses for wrong attitudes. But the, raw, the word picture here in this text is implying if you love God's word, you're going to have a strong, unshakable foundation in those times of trouble. Now, now note something important here. This verse does not say there won't be stumbling blocks. Because that would be a false promise. How I many know oh, life is filled? Life is filled with problems and difficulties. Sooner or later, we'll all deal with sickness, with failure, with disappointment, with sadness, with tragedy, with betrayal. Huh? Oh, God's children is going to deal with those things. And guess what? Death comes knocking on every door eventually. Man, Job said, is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So when we read this verse, let's make sure we understand that there will still be stumbling blocks along our way. We all will have our full measure of problems to deal with before the life is over. But the promise is this, to those who love God's law, we will not stumble when we come to a stumbling block. Somebody say, praise God. Perhaps you will step over the stumbling block. Perhaps you will walk around the stumbling block. Or God will give you the grace to walk through the stumbling block. But in any case, you will not stumble. You will not fall. You will not be destroyed by those changing and challenging circumstances in your life. So in practical terms, if we are attacked or falsely accused, we will not stumble. If we are ridiculed for our faith, we will not stumble. Praise God. We're stumble-proof. If we struggle with temptation, you don't have to stumble. If you're bothered by the failures of others that you once trusted, you don't have to make that a stumbling block. If we face hard times and bad circumstances, we don't have to stumble. If we're bothered by the argument of skeptics and doubters, we don't have to stumble. Somebody ought to say, praise God. Huh? If we're consumed with fear and worry, you don't have to stumble. If you're deeply troubled by all the craziness in our world, don't let that make you stumble. You don't have to stumble. If you feel unequal to the task that God's called you to, don't stumble. If you fear being left alone, listen, you lose a loved one to sudden death, you don't have to stumble. As... as <laughs> As difficult as it is, this verse teaches that when I really love God's law, nothing will become a stumbling block to me to keep me from serving, to keep me from obeying God. Oh, somebody ought to raise your hands and rejoice right there. I will not quit. Somebody say, I will not quit on God as long as I love His law. 
Praise God. See, the word shall in nothing shall offend is predictive, meaning I can state that loving God's law today is the best guarantee of my future faithfulness tomorrow. There are times for all of us when the storm clouds of sorrow, suffering, threatened, overwhelm us, and in those moments we're tempted to despair because we see everything around us, but having been fortified in our soul with that great promise of being stumble-proof, we have God's great peace. Somebody say, great peace, great shalom in our hearts, and we are therefore unshakable. Oh, hallelujah. I almost feel like preaching. Church, how appropriate are the words of this text in this present shaky, unstable culture? Great peace and stability can be ours if we love God's law. Nothing causes us to stumble. Nothing can defeat us. Because the Word of God is our unshakable foundation. Anybody standing on the unshakable foundation over here? All right, we've got a few. How about right here? Oh, praise God. How about this side? All right. Sister Jones, you can come wherever you're at. I think it's business guru Tom Peters. He, he uh, was asked at a seminar what he thought was the most important criterion for success. And he turned to a whiteboard behind him and he wrote in huge letters, one, one word, passion. Passion. Everybody say passion. What is passion? It's loving what you do. Huh? Ray Kroc, the late chief of McDonald's, was serious when he used to say, I quote, he said, you've got to be able to see the beauty in the hamburger bun. <laughs> he had a passion about burgers. Debbie Fields, the founder of Miss Fields Cookies. Oh, you done lost the spirit right there. You got my mind on fresh cookies. She says, I'm not a businesswoman. She says, I'm a cookie person. Amen. Hello. So my question is, are we passionate about that word? Is it truly our passion? Huh? If not, then we're going to be spiritually malnourished. We're always going to be stumbling from one stumbling block to the next. That's a horrible way to live your life. Huh? All let's stand together. May God revive our love and passion for His Word so that we'll remain stable in unstable times. We can remain unshaken in the shaky times. Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for this powerful, dynamic verse right here. Verse 165 of Psalm 119. It's a powerful promise. Nothing, if we love Your law, nothing, can offend us. Lord, it's a given. We've all experienced hurt. So here tonight, I, I just ask you to apply, apply some healing grace, healing salve on the hurts, on the wounds, 
on the offenses. And as you do that, Lord, help us to turn up the temperature of our passionate love for your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. All God's beloved children shout amen. amen. Praise God. God bless you. Before you leave, if you'd like to spend a few moments and find a place to pray, whether it's at your seat or around the front, you're welcome to do so. God richly bless you. Amen.